0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The midterms had the most diverse field of candidates ever. We'll talk about the issues that were successful for candidates and some of the impediments to a more inclusive system. Also, Tony Sarabia from Morning Shift is going to drop by, and he'll have a conversation with Governor elect J.B. Pritzker later in the program. First, let's go to Georgia. Terrell Germain Starr is senior reporter for The Root. He's written about the big Stacey Abrams Brian Kemp race and a much less publicized race for Georgia's State House that's the last GOP held seat in a black majority district. And thanks for joining us, Terrell.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, Before we get into Georgia specifically, where you are right now, I wanted to ask you a kind of overall question about what happened in the midterms. And uh, the Democrats took the House. The president was just on the air at a press conference saying it was very close to a complete victory for his side. What what do you think just happened here?
1: Well, um, what happened was that the House took an opportunity, you know, it has a, a grand opportunity to really... Uh, push and press the president on a wide range of issues. Um, As we know, many Democrats uh, would like to call for his impeachment, even though uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, has publicly voiced against that. Uh, You saw a record number of women of various ages, uh, particularly black women, who were um, who are elected to the House. So this is a watershed year in that regard. We also uh, saw some very close races in Texas with, um, you know, with our work in, in, in Ted Cruz. Uh, he was challenged like he was never challenged before. And also, in you know, in, in, in some local elections statewide. You had Tish James, who became the first African-American woman elected statewide as attorney general. And so I, I think the main thing from the Democratic side was that you had— to, you know, like a watershed moment for Black women, but also uh, what was interesting was that you had two Black Republicans who lost. Uh, you had uh, Mia Love out of Utah, and you also had uh, Her Representative Heard from uh, you know from the uh, Appalooza area. And that the issue with that was that I think uh, what was going on there was as a highly Hispanic community, and I think they really pushed back against Trump, even though Heard is not necessarily Trump. But overall. Uh, what you saw were, were two Americas. You saw one America in which uh, rejected Trump's racism, and you saw one part that um, embraced it. And I can talk about that in, in, in more detail, but that's what you saw. You definitely saw two Americas, uh, and they are very uh, stark, and there was no in-between.
0: Uh, you are there in Georgia, and you were at the Stacey Abrams um, event last night. Uh, she's got an interesting position now. She's down 75,000 votes. She hasn't conceded. She's trying to get into a runoff. Uh, what are her chances? What are, what was the thinking there last night and, and their, the thoughts about uh, moving forward here?
1: Well, here's the issue. What makes Georgia unique is that, in, in according to Georgia law, you need more than 50% of the vote in order to uh, declare victory. Technically, uh, Brian Kemp does have that fifty percent, but there are so many ballots. Um, you know, the the numbers range anywhere between seventy nine thousand and uh, you know more than a hundred thousand. Uh, whether you know votes, whether those be absentee ballots, there are some counties that have not reported one hundred percent yet. Uh, there are a number of mail in ballots that have not been accounted for, and so this is a very unusual situation where. You have so many ballots that have not been counted where uh, no one can claim a victory. And so Brian Kemp says that the numbers are on his side, which is true. As As the numbers come in and as they favor and if they favor Abrams and if Kemp's percentage drops below 50 percent, it automatically leads to a runoff. That's state law. So that's the situation that we have right here. So it's not just an approach, per se, by Abrams campaign. It's just that the numbers in total have not been counted. In fact, I was at a polling station, um, White. I was in uh, Whitman um, uh, precinct in southwest Georgia. And there were moments where um, it was a combined precinct and you had hundreds of people coming in and the staff was severely overwhelmed. There were only three machines working when there should have been, you know, 10, but they did get eight. And the polling person, uh, the manager, told me that they've been they were severely overwhelmed the whole day. They started at eight o'clock. Uh, they worked, and you know, through you know, ten o'clock last night. And it was the same crew. They asked for relief, uh, and according to the the manager, it never came. And so you have all these issues that are going on here, and so no one knows what's happening. The Abrams campaign on a phone call today said that they are, you know, not really expecting to hear any um, significant updates perhaps until Tuesday, because, you know, um, you know, Monday is a holiday. And so everything's up in the air right now.
0: You know, I was reading an article in The Atlantic, and it said that if this race were in another country, the United States would not declare it free and fair that Brian Kemp purged so mm-hmm. many people from the voting lists a year ago and some more yeah. this year, the 55,000 that everybody has talked about. And the voting day itself looks to have run so badly in so many places. And I mean, Brian Kemp had, had trouble voting himself. Uh, <laughs> so was, uh, it, and there were places I was reading about five-hour long lines and things like that. Um, does Stacey Abrams have any kind of uh, legal case that this was not a good election? And
1: oh, I mean? absolutely! Listen, I was look I, like I said there. The, the, the thing about it, and, and it's very fortunate that that we do have a free press where we could document these things. I was at one station for about three and a half hours, and. The things that I saw, you know, like overworked staff, and you literally had volunteers working the door. There weren't polling people at, at like for at least an hour. There was not a polling person at a particular door, you know, at, at at the door of the station. So yes, I mean, and and at seven o'clock there are simple things. I at, at the station I was at, uh, there were people who would be waiting in line. There were people waiting in line for four hours, and some people maybe because they wanted food. There was barbecue outside. And so they stepped in they stepped out of line to go get barbecue, but then when they turned their heads, it was seven o'clock, which is a cutoff for that particular you know for 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 voting um you know but you had to now there was confusion over the rules did you have to be within the doors by seven o'clock or did you need to be? In line already, and so there was confusion about that, and so there and, and then my colleagues around this, you know, this, the the state saw a number of other things that that, that were questionable. So, they, so this is we saw a lot of things that were wrong, um, but it's new territory. So it was just those small things where. People had to literally fight. I saw people literally—there there were people nearly getting into fights because they were waiting so long. They were with the children. They were frustrated. But, yeah, I think she—you know, she. they, they do have—the Abrams campaign does have legal counsel. They were on the phone with us uh, this morning, and they are pursuing uh, their options. They said that there are some counties in which—that uh, worked well with them, some that wouldn't. They. I asked them if they would name those counties where they thought that they uh, were met with— um, resistance and um, the campaign manager declined to say which ones. But here's the main issue. You have the secretary of state who's also the candidate. Yep. And so the candidate who's also the secretary of state has no incentive to release information publicly that would be to his at to his disadvantage. And so I definitely see this going, you know, being dragged out in you know, in the course. but primarily because there are so many votes that have yet to be counted and so many votes that can trigger a runoff. So that's where we are.
0: Talking with Ter- Terrell Jermaine Starr, senior reporter for The Root. He's written about the Stacey Abrams-Brian Kemp race. He was at Stacey Abrams headquarters last night. And you also wrote about a much less publicized, and I want to mention Tony Sarabia is going to be along soon. He's going to drop by and talk with uh, J.B. Pritzker, uh, our governor-elect mm-hmm. here. But I wanted to talk about the other election you wrote about in Georgia, a much less publicized race for the Georgia State House. It's the right. last GOP seat held by um, in a black majority district, and it's a poor area right. in southwest Georgia. And the candidate there seemed to be doing all the right things that that winning candidates were doing. She was emphasizing health care. And opportunities uh, for people in the district, and she seemed like a an appealing candidate, but she lost yesterday, and Gerald Green won. Uh, Joyce Barlow was the candidate you're, you were covering there. Uh, tell us a little about her.
1: Yeah, so I spent the day. I spent about five days in Southwest Georgia, which is the you know Albany area, and when and I traveled throughout the one hundred and fifty first district, and so it's one of those locations where. If you go down, uh, you know, a particular road, you know, for 15 minutes, you'll lose your phone signal. And then there are some communities that don't have access to broadband and people who still use dial up. So you could go miles upon miles and see nothing but wooded area and and forests. And so, you know, so uh, Mrs. Barlow, uh, I spent the day Sunday with her. Um, it, it was one of those places where people according to her and the number of people I spoke to, felt like they were so economically depressed that they did not feel like their votes mattered, did not feel as though anything uh, would change in their situations um, because they spend so much time traveling outside of their counties, you know, an hour away, an hour and a half away, to uh, go for a $10 an hour job that doesn't give them access to health care. The closest um, hospital for me, is at least 30 minutes away, sometimes 45 minutes or more, depending on how far out, how deep they are in, um, in in the country towns and where they are. And so that race uh, was one where, she, you're right, she did everything she could. But here's the interesting thing about uh, women who are running for public office, particularly black women and women of color. Uh, you know, she actually had to spend a lot of her own money up front in order to. Uh, for startup costs, such as, you know, getting office space, um, you know, getting the necessary flyers, just registering her name and her website, all these things. And so she really did not get a bulk of her money until the final two weeks. And so she actually um, had to start, you know, she had name ID within the community, but the challenge was in running her own business and also campaigning. She had to galvanize new voters in these small towns who have never been reached now. And that's actually a lot harder to do in in cities where, again, people have access to broadband. People have access to things that we take for granted. And this is happening here in the United States of America. And so much of her challenge was just getting people to know who she was, not necessarily because of the fact that she's not in the community because she is, But just people's access to, you know, uh, you know, Internet and information, you know, like information and watching television, you know. And so some of these places, you know, um, you know, electricity is challenged. So that's what she was dealing with. Now, even though she lost by a couple thousand points, she did better than I think many people thought that she would, because this was the first time where the uh, opponent was really challenged. And so I think the best thing about this race was that it showed people that someone who looked like them could actually run and be competitive. And so in the future, it may encourage more people to run. And that was all based on Stacey Abrams' campaign.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the Gerald Green won his 18th term there in the state legislature when, when yeah. he beat Joyce Barlow. And he's a former Democrat who turned Republican. So he's kind of an interesting yeah. character himself. Um, so... Mm-hmm. The um, uh, What does this say to the Democratic Party? Could they be doing more to help candidates from Joyce Barlow all the way up to Stacey Abrams?
1: Oh, oh listen, uh, look, um, I'm, I'm actually going to write about this in the next week or so. One of the first problems, I think one of the main problems, and this is what a number of elected officials have told me off the record. I mean, I've, you know, like on the condition of anonymity is that um, – is that they feel that the uh, the National Democratic Convention needs to endorse uh candidates early on um, one of the problems uh, particularly for women, black women who are the party's most loyal voters and the most consistent voters uh, in the nation, is that many black uh, elected officials believe that the Democratic Party does not do enough to um, to develop. Um, women, black women, at the local levels, and so within and and, and so one example of that, uh, the, the hypocrisy that they would cite is that there is an unofficial rule where the DNC says that they do not get involved in primaries, yet Tom Perez went to New York City when he went to New York and he endorsed uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, you know, during the primary against his progressive, uh, you know, against a progressive opponent and. You know, and Cynthia Nixon. And so many people felt like particularly progressives felt like that was a slap in the face. And so there is this, you know, and then also with John Lewis, even he actually endorsed Ayanna Pressley's, um, you know, opponent during the uh, primary. Right. And so we all love John Lewis, but a lot of people felt some type of way about that. And so you have one example after another in which black women feel that. Um, they still you know that the party still believes that in order to win that they must invest early in, like, you know, older white men. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second issue is that the party, uh, I think that it is struggling to realize uh, what their true identity is. And their true identity, according to the people who support them are, you know, people who are, you know, LGBTQ uh, minorities. And, and and women. Yet they've you know many many people argue that the the Democratic Party is still hanging on to this white working voter that is pretty much uh, gone Republican. If you look at the exit polling right now, you you know particularly with Stacey Abrams, just in across the board in the country, you have an overwhelming number of white people in every category with uh, that 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 are supporting you know very far right. Um, very Trump, you know, very Trump-supported um, uh, candidates, and we understand, you know, Trump's, you know, doctrine of white supremacy, and, and and that's something that he espouses literally every day through press, you know, press releases, through Twitter, through press conferences, through you know, where, at, at its rallies, and and when you look at the Democratic, you know, like the people who support Democrats, there are people who vote, you know, who who actually actually vote against that, and so there are still lingerings within the party that 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 are, well, grumblings that the party is not willing to let go of these white working class people who have pretty much given their support to Trump. And until the party recognizes that, then they're going to continue to have um, losses where they should be where they should be wins.
0: I'm talking with uh, Terrell Jermaine Starr, senior reporter at The Root. He is reporting from Georgia. Um, how long are you gonna stick it out there? You're gonna you're gonna focus on the Abrams campaign a little bit here. or are You gonna come back?
1: Um, it depends. <laughs> uh, you know that's a good question. I've been on the road for a month, so I've been between Georgia and and I mean straight. Like I I don't think I haven't seen my bed in you know like in, in a long time. I <laughs> if I com, if I come back, I'll come back if there's a runoff here in Georgia. And and actually, I don't know if you've been paying attention to uh, the Gillum campaign is saying that there, you know, there's a potential for a runoff there because they realize that there are more votes that that had not been counted. So that's still a story that's developing. Oh, Gillum conceded. But as far as Georgia, if there's a runoff, I'll definitely be back because the next challenge is that you have to get all these people out. Right. And so all, you know, people are pretty tired they people have sat in line for hours and hours on end and people are, are are saying oh you really want us to do this again so yeah i have to be down here to cover that but that's going to be a major uh development here but we'll see how strong our democracy is um you know when, and, you know if all that takes place at all
0: Terrell Geraint Starr is a senior reporter for The Root. He's currently writing a book, that uh, proposal that analyzes U.S.-Russia relations from a black perspective. It's been good talking with you again, and thank you for writing the great articles from Georgia.
1: Hey, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be a guest.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll continue talking about the midterm elections and talk with Yasmin Nair, an academic and uh, activist writer. Uh, stay with us. I have more with Tony Sarabia. He's going to come in with J.B. Pritzker, too. So stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is World View on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're talking about the midterms. They had the most diverse field of candidates ever. And we're talking about the issues that were successful for some of the candidates. And with me is Yasmeen Nair, an academic, an activist, a writer at large. Great to see you again, Yasmin.
2: Great to be here. Thank you. Um,
0: I know you've been thinking a bit about uh, what was happening here with this diverse field of candidates. Um, is that was there a tension between identity versus issues? And did did the candidates that were, were winning, did they have particular issues that were working for them?
2: Well, you know, right. I think I was struck by how much of the coverage, especially the progressive left coverage around, especially, for instance, black women, Native American women running in various races, was all about the fact that these women would be elected, perhaps in some sense, on, on account of their identities. And I thought that was so completely misplaced. And, I mean, what we're seeing in Georgia, for instance, uh it, it, it's, a, it's a complicated race there, of course, as you just pointed, both of you pointed out just uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, with all the electoral issues going on. But, you know, I was struck when someone said something like, um, Kemp is trying to keep out the, Georgia's first black woman governor. And I thought, no, that's not what's happening. Kemp is trying to keep out the Democrat candidate. And I think the problem we're having right now is when we frame things, when we frame electoral candidates, uh, elect- electoral campaigns and issues around identity, we lose sight of the fact that people are not actually necessarily going to be voting on questions around identity. They're going to be voting on questions around what matters to them most. So in Illinois, I think one of the more interesting races, which I wish more people nationally and locally would uh, give more coverage to, is the Lauren Underwood uh, race where where you know she won handily in an 85% white district. And she ran on issues like health care, which are what really are ma- uh, w- the issues that are really beginning to matter to a lot of people. Not beginning to matter, but they have mattered.
0: You know, there are candidates where I don't know anything about them other than their identity. Uh, the, the guy, the governor who won in Colorado, I, I don't know anything about him, but he's gay. He's the first gay.
2: And that's all the people are talking about. Jared Paulus is the first, yes, out- out-gay governor. I, I think we've had other gay governors who just haven't been out. But he's the first out-gay governor, and I think the LGBTQ press and community are going to hype that up a lot. The problem for me with Jared Polis is, you know, he's okay on a lot of issues, yes, but he's also again, a millionaire. Um, you know, we just woke up today to Illinois we are with, a, with a Democrat governor, for which I'm thankful, but uh, we upgraded from a millionaire to a multi-billionaire. Jared Polis is worth about $400 million. And he is, I think, among the, one of the richest politicians right now in the House. So we're seeing an electoral landscape that is increasingly dominated by people with enormous wealth. And I worry about the fact that we're not thinking about those kinds of systemic issues. We're thinking more about questions around who's gay, who's Native American, who's who's black, who's a woman, et cetera, et cetera.
0: You know, I was thinking about this and the House races. I thought, well, there's not as much money in the House races. And And then I looked up the Underwood campaign, and she had a lot of money, and she was getting it from outside the state. And there's all these other campaigns that are – Heidi Heitkamp was raising a lot of money from outside the state, millions and millions of dollars. And now we think that, well, this is okay because it's offsetting the billionaires, that that individuals are raising money for for people in enormous amounts. But it's – you know, ultimately – I don't. Know, I don't think it's good for democracy. It seems like that is not an okay thing,
2: right? Because what's going to, I think what's happening increasingly is that we're seeing we're going to see fewer and fewer candidates. You know, we, you just talked, for instance, in Georgia, you talked about the second candidate, not Stacey Abrams, but the second candidate who had to struggle with a deeply underfunded campaign. Um, and I think we're going to see fewer and fewer candidates, even able to make it to the first sprint, as it were, without enormous amounts of money. Obama, I think, will be the last president we'll ever see who did not come from enormous amounts of money. However, as we know, Obama is going to be making a lot of money post-presidency. I mean, the presidency right now is essentially looking more and more like a giant CEO job. You know, it's a consultancy project that you take on before you head off into millions to make after the presidency. You know, Obama's an extremely uh, young uh, p- uh, ex-president, for instance, right? So. I- this shifts, I think, when people don't think long and hard about how electoral campaigns are structured, how the the landscape of what we call democracy is so fundamentally structured, even at the smallest levels, by enormous amounts of money. That, I think... Uh, This this disallows us from thinking about how we start thinking about a society where people have more equity, have more access to the basic resources that aren't just guaranteed by people who can be wealthy and therefore fight for them.
0: I'm talking with Yasmin Nair, uh, academic and activist, and we're talking about some of the issues in the midterm elections. Also here with me is WBEZ's Tony Sarabia, host of The Morning Shift, and he's going to spend a few minutes live here with Governor-elect J.B. Pritzker. Tony Sarabia, great to have you. Thanks,
3: Jerome. Uh, Governor-elect J.B. Pritzker, are you with us?
4: Tony, I'm right here. How
3: are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. You know, I, I, you spoke to your supporters last night. From from what I heard, a, a rousing uh, victory speech. But as as you look toward your your first day and, and your, your your term coming up as governor, but the, specifically the day after this election, what do you tell the Illinois voters and Illinois residents who didn't support you?
4: I tell them that I'm going to be a governor for all of Illinois, that I intend to work across the aisle with Republicans and independents and Democrats um, on the priorities that we talked about throughout this campaign, including lowering taxes on the middle class, creating jobs, expanding health care and investing in education, making sure that uh, kids don't get strapped with debt for the rest of their lives if they want to go to college and that we've got vocational training and Career and technical education available when they graduate from high school.
3: You won uh, all but one of the collar counties. Uh, I think all except McHenry. Uh, we've seen some some shifts there, not only for your race but others. What do you think that says uh, about the Democratic Party in Illinois moving forward?
4: Well, I think we're on the upswing. Um, that you know, many of the successes we had last night were. Uh, historic. Um, We, uh, you may know this, but, you know, it's been since 1932 that DuPage County went blue for Democrats, and uh, we won Kane County, and that hasn't happened for a gubernatorial candidate since 1912. Peoria County, you know, 1968. Uh, Champaign County, 1936. And, you know, we had some real success, and Democrats, one up and down the ticket for county board, for state rep, for state senate, and for US Congress because we put together a campaign. That, that where we all work together with a common message that's focused on working families.
3: You know, as as you know, better, better than, than most of us, of all of us, uh, this was one of the most expensive governor's races between you and, and outgoing Governor Bruce Rauner. And I know we talked a, a lot of, uh, about this when you were on last time, but I, I wanted to take it from another angle. With With the amount of money you have, what do you say to folks who are concerned about the role that that money played and the role that money continues to play in terms of participatory democracy?
4: Well, I say that, you know, for my entire adult life, I've supported candidates who run for public office, most of whom could not. Um, self-fund a campaign. Um, I believe it's important for people to run for public office who have that inclination, uh, particularly Democrats. And, um, you know, and I, I have worked hard to help elect a lot of people across the board who, um, you know, who stand up for democratic values. And truthfully, that is what this campaign has been all about. It's the values that we share as Democrats. It's the, you know, standing up for working families in the middle class and those striving to get there. Um, It's the values that I was raised on about, you know, fighting for equality and inclusion and social and economic justice. So we're going to need campaign finance reform in the state of Illinois, and we've got to fight for it on the federal level, too. Um, but I'm proud to have run a campaign that helped Democrats get elected up and down the state and up and down the ticket.
3: I want to pivot over to your uh, transition committee. Uh, one of the one of the people that stands out to me is, is someone who held the office that you will be holding uh, in the not too distant future. One of the co-chairs is former Republican Governor uh, Jim Edgar. Uh, by, by picking him as a co-chair, what what message are you are you hoping or trying to send to to the voters and to the residents of Illinois?
4: That we're bringing people into our transition that bring real experience in the office and of uh, executive experience uh, and who understand the challenges that we've got. And also that we need to bring back bipartisanship to Springfield, that it's a real priority, that we work together across the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, to solve the big problems that face our state.
3: What's your what's your plan for day one?
4: Well, you know, we've got a lot of challenges to meet, uh, but I want you to know that on day one, we're going to begin working on the short, medium and long term challenges that face hardworking families all across the state. And again, that means uh, making sure that we're raising wages, creating jobs lowering the cost of health care, expanding it to everybody, and uh, making sure that college is truly affordable.
3: Well, Governor-elect uh, J.B. Pritzker, I hope to uh, talk to you more in, in depth before the end of the year on the morning shift. In the meantime, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us. I, I know you have to get going.
4: Thanks so much, Tony.
0: Jerome, back to you. Tony, nice talk, nice having you in, dropping by. Stick around for Global Notes. Your old <laughs> segment is going to be on in a few minutes. I want to hear more of this conversation
3: <laughs> you're having with Yasmin.
0: Yasmin Nair is here. She's an academic and activist, and we're talking to her about some of the issues in the midterm election. And, um, all right, there we heard our governor-elect talking about he did utter the words campaign finance reform. We need it in Illinois. We need it in other places. Um, do, do you think that is... Uh, you know it's it, it but we've got to work within this system that oh. is you know uh, kind of unfair to candidates who right. want to run uh, what do you make of that?
2: Well, I mean, he talked about supporting uh, candidates who didn't have as much money, and I, you know, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, democracy as philanthropy is really not the way to go. Um, the other issue I want to raise is the hyper intense focus we have had, especially I think post Trump, upon the quote unquote democratic process and the electoral process, and I want to start to. Ask people to start thinking about how to initiate change and create a better civil society, as it were, without being so completely invested in the idea that only electoral campaigns and only electoral politics can do that. So, I think, for instance, I think we, you know, I'm thinking here about questions. Th- Questions that really affect us on extremely local ways, in really local, not just local races, but local issues. So I'm thinking here, for instance, about the fact that uh, cities like Chicago, New York, San Francisco, but also not urban areas necessarily, are all beset by a massive amount kind of housing crisis, right? And the housing crisis, I think, in this country takes uh, takes two different forms. One is this issue of home ownership, quote unquote, which everybody focuses on, especially candidates, right? As everyone says, my aim here, you know, the average candidate will say, my aim here is to bring home ownership to middle class Americans. That's what I want to do. I want to expand home ownership. But in places like Chicago and in many other places that are not necessarily, you know, quote unquote, cities or urban areas, the issue should not be home ownership. The issue should be housing as a fundamental right. And that might involve, for instance, the state, local government stepping in and ensuring that residents have access to decent housing. In San Francisco, um, they had uh, a proposition around rent control, which was defeated. And that's un- really unfortunate. We need things like rent control, not just in urban areas, but across the board. We need to have ways in which people can access things like housing. Without having to depend on the concept of home ownership, which really doesn't do much more than really extend the stranglehold of the banking industry upon us, it's
0: interesting. The um, the whole uh, idea about rights is something that we talk about now as healthcare as a right is something that wasn't talked about at all twenty years ago. But it it needs to be. It, you could broaden it out to to housing, and housing as a right is something that we we could talk about, so that we don't have, you know, things like people running up gigantic um, housing debts, getting into housing debts, and in, in situations they they shouldn't be in. You're either um, you're either a renter or something in a in a, a tight spot, or you're or you've got to buy some gigantic place.
2: Right. And if you're a renter, you know, one of the things that people often say about renters is that well, they don't really have loyalty to their neighborhoods because they're just renters and they move around. Well, renters have to do that because they have to keep moving from place to place as they keep getting priced out of their neighborhoods, right? So, if we're going to talk about again a larger civic society, we're going to talk about how to build stronger communities and neighborhoods, then ensuring that people can stay and have roots in their communities is one way of doing that and one one way of doing that is to not demand that, for instance, a 22-year-old plunk down a massive, adv- you know, what do they call it, a mortgage. <laughs> I don't, uh, I'm not a homeowner, as you can <laughs> tell. I'm struggling to find the right towns to plunk down, you know, um, enough money to raise money for, to, to buy a condo in a place like, say, Hyde Park, where I live. Uh, that's, that's simply not, I don't think that's the way we want to go. But that is, unfortunately, I think that is exactly the kind of rhetoric and strategy that most candidates uh, are aiming for these days.
0: Do you think that this election nudged, the, changed the needle at all for marginalized communities, whether it's um, women, the poor? Uh, is there any more opportunity for people who need health care? Uh, did, did this work for the people uh, who need help?
2: I think it did in the sense that it got certain, I think we'd have seen candidates who have campaigned on issues like healthcare. um, But I don't see a general, you know, they were expecting a massive blue wave, for instance, and what I see is more of a blue slush, really. So I'm not, and I think that Democrats in particular haven't quite um, haven't quite recognized the fact that they cannot sit complacently on the idea that simply an anti-Trump backlash will ensure uh, the kinds of electoral results they might want. And I say this as someone who's not invested in electoral politics. On the other hand, I am very glad that we have a Democrat governor. I'm very glad that Wisconsin ousted Scott Walker, for instance. So, so I understand the need for those kinds of electoral changes. And I think that's what we need to see more of, for instance, in 2020. I don't know if we're actually going to get there because I see Democrats being extraordinarily complacent right now. For instance, I'm hearing, well, even if we lost Democratic you know, races here and there, it's great that they were so close. No, a lost election is a lost election. You know, We really need to keep our eyes on how to actually score decisive wins, not just...
0: Demographic score. wins. Exactly. It seems like exactly. we're... we're the- you people are looking at the losses uh, that Democrats suffered in Florida and say, "Well, maybe next time they're right. they're really close, and next time the demographics are going to go in our the the Democrats No, I mean
2: actually. next time, you know, a major manufacturer in this district could leave, and you would have a completely different set of circumstances uh, and a different electoral result.
0: Um. So, do you have any advice for people? Do you have any advice about how we should uh, approach uh, our coming? electoral politics?
2: You know, my advice is always sort of on the sort of intellectual level of really thinking long and hard about the ways, different ways in which we bring change about. So for instance, what I always tell people, and people often get annoyed with me when I say, you know, the electoral voting is not the answer, right? And they say, well, without it, we have nothing. And my response is, you know, think of it as People don't always like to hear this term, but think of it as harm reduction. You do what you have to do in an election. You you vote. You do what you have to do to get your candidates in. But you also have to start thinking about how to put pressure on candidates, and I don't mean holding their feet to the fire. I mean changing the the fire itself, right? So thinking about, you know, when you have things like, for instance, in Florida, you've got uh, what people are referring to as the enfranchisement now of people who've been in prison. But the problem is that actually doesn't include sex offenders and doesn't include murderers right so for me when I look at something like that I think well on the one hand yes it's a gain for many 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 people I'm glad to see that but intellectually conceptually in terms of what I think of as a better world I have to ask what on what conditions are we excluding very specific kinds of quote-unquote criminals for instance
0: Yasmin Nair, uh, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about your perspective on the midterm elections. Yasmin Nair is a writer, academic, and activist, and it's great to see you again, and we'll talk soon.
2: Great to be here. Thank you so much, Shira.
0: Coming up after the break, we're going to have Global Notes. We'll uh Get out of the politics and get into some great international music. Catalina Maria Johnson is just back from the World Music uh, Festival and we'll we'll talk with her about Womax. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
2: E parrote a Lá na fundo, ribeirãozinho Oi, mãe Quando um lá na ribeira Não pensa que era um canhota Era amor
0: de anjinho Oi, mãe Quando um
2: lá na ribeira Não pensa que era um canhota Era amor de anjinho
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, the host producer of Beat Latino, the music and culture writer. Catalina, this is a gorgeous voice we're hearing.
5: It really is. This is Lucy Bella from Cabo Verde, from Cape Verde. And she's one of the artists I wanted to highlight from my recent visit to the Canary Islands, to the World Music Expo,
0: it sounds very exciting. The World Music Expo moves around to different places, and the Canary Islands <laughs> is uh, was a wild a place to <laughs> wild place to go.
5: It was, and and it was so special to be there on this like little piece of volcano in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, halfway down Africa, and to be there with twenty seven hundred delegates from all over the world. And I have to say, Chicago had a huge presence. We had David Chavez from the Cultural Center. We had um, the Segundo Belvis Ruiz Cultural the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, um, Omar Cartwright-Torres was there, and members from the Colombian Festival here in Chicago. So Chicago was huge. Um, and 2,700 delegates to the World Music Expo to really become inspired, and he, it's it's an industry, a world music industry industry. Um, trade show, if you will, and to hear, oh, I don't know, more than 300 artists, I think, performed, and so I had to only choose five, but Lucy Bella from Cabo Verde, she's steeped in that morna, the saudade, the kind of uh, in- incredible music from that part of the world that was this crisscross from this little island um, d- during the time of uh, the enslaved person's trade.
0: Her and her voice is just so uh, beautiful. She has range and depth. It's beautiful.
5: It is. And the, the beauty of like a really accomplished and t- talented artist like Lucibella is how... Um, it's just how they how she does it so effortlessly. Like it was truly effortless grace. No strain, no stress, and just the perfection of the rhythm. So Lucy Bella was one of my favorite artists. Let's hear from another one. Okay, we're going to Algeria and France and this is where Rai, the music of Algeria just gets really funky, <laughs> rocked out.
1: See هاليام قلبي وحدي to be watty
0: Rai music is so uh, appealing. The beat, the sounds, the, the I love the way that he's distorting there, and that's
5: good. <laughs> well, and it's uh, it's original. Like, kind of heyday was in the eighties, and I, I have to say, the eighties in Algeria were better <laughs> 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 musically than the eighties in the USA. But this is kind of the electro. He calls it Rai Two Point Saidi. Uh, and it was. Truly electrifying. Um, Womex has five nights of showcases. Um, most nights, they sp- the concerts start at nine. They go till two a.m. ish, and then there are DJs and there are five stages, forty-five minutes each. So you get an amazing breadth and depth of
0: music. So if people, uh, music industry people, go to see, I mean, I mentioned they're music enthusiasts and they're susceptible to. To good music, but yeah, are they a tough crowd? I mean, if you electrify a crowd like Sofain Sadib did, uh, is that a, is that like an extra bonus?
5: And definitely, definitely, it's a hard audience to please, I would say, uh, and and jaded in, in in a good kind of way. Um, so yeah, when 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 a band doesn't, and sometimes it's the sound, sometimes it's uh, members can't make it. But as with everything, you know, it's it's there is a little bit of pressure, and the artists are. They're they're determined to kill it. They've got uh, an audience that is international that can take their music, not just to the United States, but to Germany, to all over Europe, to China. There's a a significant Chinese and Korean delegation, Uh and they're taking these musicians to China and Korea. So there's a lot of pressure to do it right, and and you normally get a super high quality. uh, This is also curated and a juried, so it's not just like you apply, you send your money in, and you get to go. You're actually—it's a juried— industry showcase. So they're already selected, if you will.
0: We're talking with Catalina Maria Johnson, the host of Beat Latino, who she's just back from the 2018 World Music Expo in the Canary Islands. And
5: where are we going next? We're going to South Carolina and Georgia to listen to the music of the Gullah communities. And I think, again, we have such amazing international music just on this side of the Atlantic also. This is Ranky Tanky.
1: Who is the greatest? We are the greatest. I sure? Yeah. Positive? yeah. Positive. Yeah. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. Old lady come from Booster. Had two hands and a rooster. Rooster died. The old lady cried. She no not eggs like she used to. Old lady come from Booster. Had two hands and a rooster. Rooster died. The old lady cried. She no not eggs like she used to.
0: That is Ranky Tanky, doing Ranky Tanky. And explain a little bit about the Gullah community and where these people are coming from.
5: Well, uh, the Gullah communities of South Carolina and the Georgia coastlands uh, trace their language and culture back to West and Central Africa. And, of course, what happened in that, like, historical juncture uh, was that certain kinds of uh, spirituals and children's rhymes and dance music and jazz-influenced music, as well as the West and Central African influences just all came together and it's 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 like the kind of things that you of course you remember, I remember from childhood like clapping and, and it, it's beautifully infectious and it's incredibly sophisticated <laughs> all at the same time and within what seems to be simplicity and, and As
0: you can hear that members of Ranky Tanky are, are accomplished jazz musicians, some of them as well who've gone back and kind of got in, integrated more Gullah rhythms and ideas and songs into into their thing, and now it comes out like this, and it's great. It is. It
5: it, it it's its richness is is just so surprising because you think of these things as, again as you know there's always like the high art, low art, and then you're like this is so sophisticated and so rich and so textured, and it sounds great like. You know, and it had everybody from all over the world, like dancing, like just hopping and dancing.
0: Uh, Next, we're moving up uh, to Canada and indigenous music.
5: And very far north to Canada all the way. This is practically to the Arctic. This is a fascinating artist, Elisa Pie, and this is a song. Uh, she's uh, Enoch, and she sings in, in also in her language, but this is a song in English, and I love the song. Just the richness and the rocked-outness of it, and it's called Wolves Don't Live by the Rules. <laughs>
0: That's Elisa P.A., and she's doing her song, uh, Wolves Don't Live by the Rules, and um, we're just getting a little snippet of it there. I watched the video, which was very good online and has to do with the, uh, what life is like for Inuit communities now and uh, kind of in the recent past, and it's very interesting.
5: Well, she's also a, fil- she's also a filmmaker, so definitely um, she knows visual art, and I also think that her sonic art, her songs have that space and have that If people want to
0: look her up, her name is E-L-I-S-A-P-I-E. And that's a version of Elizabeth in an Inuit language.
5: Right, right. Elizabeth, Isaac.
0: Um, Well, we're just about out of time, and there's so much more to Womax, I'm sure. And w- what would you like to end on here?
5: I want to end on the Garifuna Collective, and I want to say that this was the last show of the last five days. And in 20 years of Womex, because of their schedule, they've never permitted an encore. The audience was so crazy about this band from Honduras and Belize, uh, Afro Garifuna, Afro Honduran, Afro Belizean, that. They demanded, and they just they gave up. They let us have an encore. This is the Garifuna Collective at WOMEX.
0: I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.